Osiris. Count to three. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of... Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. You have found Daniel Donato's Lost Highway. That lost highway. Yes. Howdy, friends. Welcome back to the Lost Highway podcast. <sighs> Just breathe and slow down. The speed limit on this highway is a little bit different than every other one. This is the podcast of, of all things Cosmic Country. My name is Daniel Donato, and I'm still learning, still seeking, still searching. There was a, uh, there's this quote by Ned Logan or Lajan. Uh, sorry, Ned, if I pronounce your name wrong. And I also want to get you on this podcast one day. Um, you, Ned played with the dead in, in a very uh, brief stint of time in, in the early, mid, early to the mid-70s. And um, he was a brilliant uh, contributor to what they were doing at the time. And he has this quote in the book, Conversations with the Dead, that David Gans organized. And I love this. Uh, he was talking about what is the philosophy of the dead? Uh, David asked Ned, and then he said, to understand and appreciate and celebrate the mythological possibilities in everyday life and there in the responsibility to life and to the universe. Now, why am I saying this? Well, this weekend I was in Charlotte watching Dead & Co. And before the show started, I was on Shakedown Street with my friend. And at the time, I had this interaction in which I was completely sober. And uh, this this very nice fellow who was selling t-shirts, his name was Wyatt. He came up to me, he stopped me. And he was numerating these details to me in which he was saying that he loved Cosmic Country and he felt it. And I felt it in my solar plexus as well that he was being truthful. And he gave me the shirt. And as he gave me the shirt, he goes, I have a hot take on you. And so do all my friends here with me. And there was a group of, of fellas there. Um, we all took a picture together and they were really nice guys. I could feel it in my heart. And, uh, they were there for the same reason I was, to seek truth and hit that peak moment that the live music experience brings us. And he says, you know, we have a hot take, which is one day you'll be up there uh, making music with the band. And in my mind, instantly, I was like, well, no, that can't be possible. <laughs> like that, you, greatness like that doesn't happen to you. And then it's like, you know, a couple days later, especially yesterday, I'm driving home and I'm thinking, wait, fuck that voice. <laughs> fuck that internal voice that says those things aren't possible. And fuck any external voice that says it's not possible. Responsibly, right? You want to be, you, you have to, you have the free will to a degree to rest in the middle of polarity uh, between extreme and non-extreme in a very sober and beneficial way. But it's not out of the question. And so it, it'd be crazy for me. It's also one of my biggest um, components of my vision of life would be to make music with the band um, on stage to, to, to the, to the fans. Like that would be, I would service that muse and that organization up until my last breath of life with, with great happiness and sincerity and, uh, as much cosmicness as I can, like truly, like I, I feel I'm getting goosebumps just saying it. Everyone watching on YouTube, I'm truly just getting goosebumps just saying it. And so I have to, I, I think, and I'm being transparent with you, the listener, because it helps me unpackage these emotions and I hopefully 
we're not alone in this. I think you have to be this honest with yourself and accept that greatness is possible and you have a responsibility to life and to the universe, which are things bigger than you and which you come from, to serve that greatness and that individuality. Individuality and greatness being two different things, but they work together. And so fulfill that greatness understand and appreciate and celebrate the mythological possibilities in everyday life and therein the responsibility to life and to the universe because we are just these cosmic carbon experience experiments that life in nature is creating in order for it to understand and fulfill itself more and more um so don't take it so personally uh just be great <laughs> that was the thing that and that helps me kind of unpackage this complex emotion I had because part of me was getting down on myself for not allowing me to accept the fact that that actually is possible and that I would I would love to do that and I would find great service in doing that and that it's part of the vision of life and it's all right to have grandeur in your vision of life. In fact, it, it should be necessary because according to Alan Watts, right, life is a gamble. And so either you don't play at all or you really fucking gamble because you have to play life. This is verbatim from him in the regards that the game of life is superb. Believe it is superb, act in ways that it is superb because it is. And if you don't believe so, it's because you have data that has told you otherwise. And, and there's further data sets in which you can go and familiarize yourself with that will bring you back to the center of superb, the center of what is superb. Um, believe it is possible, act as if it is possible. And uh, I, again, I just love this quote. This was the, his philosophy. This what Ned is saying it was the philosophy of the dead is to understand and appreciate and celebrate the mythological possibilities in everyday life and there and the responsibility to life and to the universe. You have a responsibility to be great and fulfill yourself to the most degree that to the highest degree that you can. You really do. 16 hours at a time. Keep it cosmic, y'all. Stay patient, stay persistent, stay positive, and I'll see y'all down the road. My next guest today is one of the most realized and talented individuals I've ever had the pleasure of calling a friend and also collaborating with, which is a Mr. Joshua Ray Gooch. Uh, his resume is is staggering. And uh, who he is as a person, too. Uh, he turned me on to podcasts. He turned me on to Sam Harris. He turned me on to Joe Rogan. Uh, he turned me on to Jay Dilla. He turned me on to Q-Tip. He turned me on to Selvage Denim. He turned me on to so many facets of, of interest and wonder that I that I now carry on in my life uh, over the years. And this was the first time we've actually sat down and had a, a, a the parameters of what will be a discussion that is musical, philosophical, and also humorous uh, along each line, which I think is important in order to digest these two concepts uh, to their fullest degree. Because the muses of philosophy and the muses of music, they like humor and they like lightheartedness. Because uh, I think the realm of in which they operate in, which I'm not sure is bound by space and time, I think has a abundant and benevolent force of lightheartedness that fuels it all. And I think that's why we resonate with these things and we find them in music. Uh, Josh has uh, done Grammy-nominated film scores. He's played with bands in Japan that do 50,000 fucking tickets when he was like a teenager. Uh, he played with Shania Twain for years and he shreds all those Brent Mason parts and, and, and other amazing lead guitar parts and rhythm parts that are on those recordings to a T. Um, 
So a very heavy-minded individual is able to set aside his ego and just get great accuracy in 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 executing these compositions. Um, for huge artists, like he's just a brilliant musician, a brilliant mind, and I cannot wait for you guys to to hear what we talk about here. L- literally, none other than Mister Joshua Ray Gooch. I'm not going to get to showcase it, but, but I, I can't explain it. What do you got going on? You wait. You got a um. You got a Naha, right? You got the. You have a native yeah. Naha. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I didn't go for the turquoise just because I've met too many like uh, Arizona ladies that are just like decked out, and I'm like Arizona long hair. I'm gonna end up looking like sort of a middle aged woman in Tucson. So I figured I'd go for the Naha. Sands turquoise. <laughs> I love saying sands. Sands is such a fun. It's like saying caveat. It's like saying I E Arizona ladies. I E. It, it really it steps you into a new level of poshness. <laughs> I love I love that stuff because like you know it's funny and I don't know how you were in school. I mean it's weird because I mean we should maybe tell people that we've known each other now for Year? about a decade. About 10 years, and I wanted to uh, say I think it's been three years since we've actually sat down and chilled and talked. I know. I know. It's weird. It's like you and I have known each other for a decade, and we've texted all throughout that just you know, here and there and send stuff back and forth, but we we don't get to hang out that much. It's, it's really a- like, NAM. or like if, I, if you happen to come out to LA or if I happen to come out to Nashville, but it doesn't happen as often as um, – as I think I would hope, you know, there's a rather, um, very real connectedness that happens when you're friends with somebody who is on a very similar journey as you, you know, especially through the, the medium of the guitar and how we discover ourselves and we discover our, our career and we discover all kinds of parts of reality through the, you know, time invested in that instrument. It's almost as if that connection is so strong and so real, uh, between both of us that, the uh, absence of time or the la- or actually the real presence of a, a lot of time in between our communication doesn't matter because it's like we're yeah. still we're still riding that same wave yeah I, yeah I I completely agree I have I definitely have people like that and it, you know what I think the pandemic has actually brought out a little bit in me where I was like man yeah. a couple people that I know or have known for years and just lost touch with just because I mean, we'll probably get into this, but just modern society is so difficult to manage the overwhelming amount of information that you always have coming in. Right. It is. Sometimes there's people where you're like, I should have been prioritizing this person mm-hmm. that I just fell out of touch with. It had nothing to do with not being as fond of each other. Just, And I've reached, there's probably been like five or 10 people that I've just been like, hey, do you want to Zoom and catch up? It's been way too long. And- you know, it's like one of those hidden benefits of uh, the pandemic situation, which I think I'm sure you found some too. Obviously, there's a ton of downside, but um, there's things that I don't know if either one of us would have done otherwise, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's a, you know, the necessity is the mother of invention, right? And yeah. the social craving to, to interact with people and have experience, you know, um, to have experience is to open the door for inspiration to come into your life. Um, you know, and it's a great way to find a variety of experience through socializing with others, you know, and, um, that was the thing of, of the pandemic that initially hit me in the hardest way, which was the, uh, the forced, uh, solitude, the Walden, uh, 
nature. I live behind my parents. I live in a house behind my parents. Okay. So you've got some like human, a little bit of human interaction. Great amount. On a daily basis. Okay. That's good. My, uh, family interaction. So not living, not living yeah. at home for a number of years and then moving. Uh, my parents, we grew up in this town. Uh, I, I did. My parents didn't. Uh, we grew up in this small town called Spring Hill, Tennessee, which is about an hour south of town. It's small Southern town. And so I moved out of there when I started having a career in music that afforded me the ability to not live in my house anymore. And um, right before the pandemic hit, my parents were moving back into Nashville. They got a bigger, nicer house. There's a smaller house behind theirs. Why not? I'm single now. Why not do it for a couple of years and, and have that story in that part of my life where I'm living behind my parents' house, <laughs> podcast and making music and doing you know every what I do um, all the time, still working really hard and still on a mission, not slacking at all, but just doing it at home again and kind of simulating yeah. that, uh, that experience that I had when I was in high school. And so the the pandemic did that even more so. It was like, yeah. you can do anything you want for 12 hours a day, you know, and, and really not worry about actually having to go and get anything of real value done. Um, that solitude was great. High school, <laughs> high school sir. It's why yeah, you and I, you and I both did it. I mean, I, you know, it's funny, like the first, I, I probably like you have had like numerous or a plethora of very small, like miniature hobbies, a lot of which involve music or guitar, some of which don't. Like I got really into cooking and I got really into a whole bunch of other like little things like that. But there's been a lot of little guitar obsessions. But I, the first like four months of the pandemic, I was practicing and playing guitar in a non-specific way of like not prepping for a gig. Not, you know what I mean? Like when you're playing guitar to do stuff for more like career. I don't want to say career because it sounds kind of douchey, but you know what I mean? Like where you're like, I've got a gig coming up. I, I have to work on this specific thing and there might be something else I'm like listening to, but I can't spend time with that because I got to gotta get this stuff together. That all went away. So mm -hmm. I was like working on like, I mean, I didn't go to music school just like you and like I just started working on jazz because I love jazz. Oh, wow, okay. No. And okay. I'm not by no means like a jazz player now, but I spent like the first four months of the pandemic practicing what like what is a rock 10 hours, like 10 hours a day. But you're like, that's the thing. Day. Isn't that so weird that we like think about people as genres of players when really it's just communication on the guitar and like you're just multilingual? It's yeah. so weird. It's so strange to me, but I guess it is a valid way to to to, to classify like what you're participating in language wise. But like you're ever like you play country, you play rock, you play jazz, you play acoustic guitar. Well, it's like you have influences in hip hop. Like you turned me on to Jay Dilla. Like I didn't know Jay Dilla before. I, he was huge, and so dude, that's very, that makes me so happy. You know, it's a real thought that I'm having because it's like, well, the more boundaryless we can get, the better. Like the more yeah, boundary. Yeah. And music really is an invitation within our own reality that we live in to actually be boundaryless in some ways, in a way more immersive sense than most other mediums, especially of entertainment. Like we yeah. are boundaryless within music and it's the, the potential for that's real. And it's like, you know, your knowledge and skill on the guitar, you can play slide well. It's like even hearing you play slide, it sounds like somebody who like, that's all they do is they play slide, but not oh, you. Man. And I appreciate that. Yeah, man. So it's a really transcendent connection you have with the instrument that I've just been a fan of forever. So it's like, to me, you're just so uh, genreless in what you do. And I, I think it's like that with other players that I love too. It's like, you know, 
it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing, but practicing jazz for 10 hours a day sounds absurd. Like, what do you do? Well, okay. So, well, first of all, thank you very much for those compliments. Yeah, and the feeling is mutual and I'm sure we'll get into, uh, you know, talking more specifically about that, but I, it, we'll, we'll get into that. But I remember seeing you play yeah. down at Roberts for the first time being like, dude, this is crazy. Cause <laughs> I, I was sort of new to country at that point, relatively new to country music at that point, but we'll, we'll get into that. But about the jazz thing, the only reason, you know, it's funny. Cause like, usually I'm very much on that tip where I'm like, genre doesn't matter. And like people ask what my favorite genre to play is. I'm sure you get that question a lot, particularly from non-musicians most of the time. Um, and I'm always like, it, that doesn't, doesn't mean anything to me. And within a single gig, you'll go into all these different styles. The difference with jazz is the level of depth within the harmony. Mm. That's what changes everything because you can only be boundaryless as far as your harmonic sensibilities will let you be. You could have the greatest phrasing in the world. And I think I feel very lucky that I, I was in the, uh, did a lot of like blues and blues related mediums for a long time because everything in that world is phrasing. It's not about licks. It's not about, it's, it's all phrasing. And that's why like a lot of our favorite blues players, whether it's like, you know, Albert King or BB King or Albert Collins, they didn't have a ton of licks. It was all phrasing. So you're talking like, yeah, so a really thing, a real thing that you're touching in on here is the difference between memorizing and understanding. When at first, yeah. you know, licks might serve as mediums of memorization, where it's as if you're learning a language the first time. You, you start in small sentences like you do in first grade, these memorized, you know, a cat runs, a dog eats, things like this. But then ultimately, over time, you understand the language so well that you can actually derive uh, knowledge from it at any given improvisational crossroads and uh, traverse with ease. And that's when you understand the language. You're talking about phrasing as understanding music. Yeah, right? and you know, if we're going to make like corollaries with, with like writing and stuff like that, I think that when I think of blues, I think of like right. Hemingway and Bukowski in the sense that like, and this is going to get like really <laughs> up my own ass about this, but. No, it's so literal. Right. But, but like, th this is what I mean by that. Like both of those guys write with very limited flowery language. There's not a whole lot of like extravagance in the sentences. It's all very like simple and like right to the chest. And I feel like that's what blues is like, um, right. Without doubt. Yeah. And it's, and it's not that some of those guys don't know a little bit more like BB King occasionally, especially you listen to those early records where he's doing more of the T-Bone Walker thing. You're like this mofo knows some jazz licks this mofo knows some jazz he does he all had those trumpet player influences you know that's where he gets the bb king the thing the high yeah, yeah. like you know it's to emulate the trumpet and it's so real it's so funny stealing energies from other players like i do that with steel guitar yeah too yeah too much like i'm trying to yeah. sound like ralph mooney and jerry garcia on steel guitar too much you know, it's like I'm yeah. really stealing that energy all the time. It's funny to hear how that happens on guitar, man. Well, there's certain there's certain still players you can like, like I'm sure it's a whole other ball game trying to cop something from like Paul Franklin, but like somebody like Dan Dugmore. Dan Dugmore is a great steel player as a guitar player to listen to mm -hmm. because Dan is a great. I'm sure some of the Nashville guys are like, why does this guy know about Dugmore? I I feel lucky that. When I first joined Shania's band, I was not really a country guy. It wasn't that I actively disliked it. I just, I didn't grow up with country music at all. 
you know, I was born in Seattle, moved to San Diego. And like my dad's favorite music was like Humble Pie and Band of the Gypsies and Neil Young. Yeah, yeah. And my mom, my mom didn't really listen to a lot. Of, like she, she loves like Earth, Wind and Fire and stuff like that. Like stuff you can dance to, but also has good tastes at the same time. Right. But I didn't grow up with country music at all. The closest thing was Neil Young. So, Ooh, that's like Canadian country. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's got, a, I, I was going to say Americana, but a Canadiacana or whatever, but mm -hmm. I love Neil Young, but. Free healthcare Acana. <laughs> yes. Yes. Free healthcare Acana. I mean, with Neil, it's like, I think through Neil and just some of the other artists that I was listening to, I heard pedal steel a bit, heard banjo, heard mm -hmm. some mandolin. James Taylor on banjo, on harvest, on old man. Yeah. What? Yeah, and that's man. Talk about a great, insane. I got to do. I got to do a track like last year on a Larry Golding's record. Scary. And I got to play uh, banjo, ganjo. You got that six string banjo. That is but, that's the meme instrument of Nashville. Like if people, dude, like, it's such a funny thing to see. I, I know it, and in LA, it's not really ever talked about. So, I, and I don't get to use it much. So for me, it's more like when I use ganjo. Um, the way that I try to do it is sometimes I'll go, I'm going to treat this literally like a guitar. Yeah. Right? Sometimes I'll literally play it like a guitar. Sometimes I really try to bring in certain open droning strings to make it sound. So basically anybody who doesn't play banjo or doesn't play in a band with a banjo all the time doesn't know the difference. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's sort of my goal. So I, I kind of tried to find that middle ground of like, sure, but, yeah. but, I, but I'm also like, yeah, I'm not. If somebody's like, hey, are you a banjo player? I'm like, no. No. Could I play banjo on a record? Like, could I play that on a record and like nobody knows the difference? Sure. Yeah. Outside of, outside of the bluegrass world, obviously, the experts always know, but. They really do, isn't that? And the experts are, you know, a very small percentage of the population. So it's like, you know, when people say they want something, they, they really just want the timbre of something. It's like the multifaceted yeah. meaning that instruments exist in. It's like, you know, I could play slide guitar on a track. I, and yeah. people do it all the time, but it does, it's not going to sound like you, you know, it's not going to sound like someone who's spent the hours and, and has the, has the, uh, like the, the pathways and, and the neurons wrapped, uh, yeah. slides, but, slides very much like that. Cause the, the, the initial learning curve of slide is really frustrating. Crazy. Like, I know a lot of guys that like, they would say like yourself, like if a producer asked me to play slide on a track, I can totally do it. Right. And anybody listening is like, hey, there's slide on that. It sounds good. But then there's the other element of like, I, you know what? I, I think usually what it comes down to is improv. Because like, for instance, I play mandolin in the Shania show. I'm not a mandolin. Like if I went to a jam session and somebody's like yeah. improvise on the mandolin, I'm like, mm -hmm. no. But if you're like play a part on the mandolin. Yeah, Totally. Even if it's a pretty difficult part, like I understand the, the sort of the positioning and the, you know, how the pick should sound and the angles and the type of pick that I'm using to get more of a mandolin. You know what I mean? Like, but then if somebody was like, let's jam, I'm like, no, that's yeah, it's I my memorize and understanding. It's like, you're yeah. still a, you know, it's Taurus versus purist mentality. It's like, you're in the fashion, you know, Virgil Abloh talks about that all the time with Taurus versus purist. And he tries to remain um, grounded in both mentalities because one yeah. is much more, you know, listener driven and consumer driven. Then the other side is more, you know, producer and expert driven. People who are actually creating the tones usually tend to know more. 
then we have less access to that tourist fun part of just playing a part and working and it sounding good and serving the song. You mentioned the James Taylor part on Old Man. It's like, how many amazing banjo players exist? I uh, still think that's the hookiest banjo part I've ever heard in my well, life. Well, there, there lies the the real thing, my friend, which is, my I, we were doing a writer's round last night here in town. And um, so writer's rounds in Nashville are usually just like four acoustic guitar players sitting down, sharing three songs and telling stories in between just on acoustic guitars. And we did a Cosmic Country one last night. And so it was it got a little more weird than like your standard <laughs> music row writer's round. We got a great turnout. It was fun. And my friend Taylor McCall said it's uh it all starts with how you play that G chord. You can tell everything from how someone plays a G chord. And it's so true. And man, James Taylor, some other musicians that just have that melodic relationship with music that is just it, it, it traverses any instrument. It just is pure relationship with melody and timing. Yeah. You know what's funny? In a re this is super specific. Super yeah. specific. But if I see a guitar player that has really any amount of gain above like pretty damn clean and they're playing a G or an E chord with a third in it, I'm like, nope, you don't you don't know what you're doing. Oh, Immediately. Oh wow. So maybe maybe less so with the e because the e the the third is a little bit higher up in the open chord and you can make it work but if you play a g chord with that that low b in it oh so like a string second fret you can't be putting a third unless the third is in the bass it sounds cool yeah 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 but i'm saying if you if you pick up an electric guitar and play that g chord with a third in it with like a gainy tone you're talking about this no 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 an open g with the third Oh, in the bass though, right. You're saying that's not acceptable. If they add that, if that's not the bass note, like let's say the chord is a G and they're playing the third for no, it's like you're just adding mud to the chord for literally no, like anytime somebody who plays with gain plays an open G chord, they mute the A string with their ring cool. finger that they're fretting. That one five, that's all you need in that situation. Exactly. So that's, that's like one of those, that's why it's funny. And I'm sure maybe you've had this before where somebody's like, Hey, what do you think of this guitar player? And, and it's clearly somebody that wants you to be honest. Like you're not in the room with the person that's playing and you know, your friends like, what do you think? And I bet you, you're the same way as me where you see them sit down with the guitar yeah. and you could have it on mute and say, you, you could have the TV muted and be like, this guy knows what he's doing. Or called, he does. Uh, I think it's called, isn't that called rapid cognition processing? I'm sure it is. But the fact that it's definitely rapid, but the fact that you can do it muted just shows oh, how much what, what body language like how much does body language matter? And it's like a lot. Third amounts. Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. He had, he had this, uh, I don't remember where it was. Ah, oh, doesn't matter. I don't remember books. I don't remember the names. I just remember information from them and story <laughs> articles. And, and that's enough. Like we have enough, I have enough shit to memorize and learn. Yeah, um, yeah. Malcolm Gladwell went into this whole concept of rapid cognition processing where he would go and interview um, just experts in any domain of expertise. Art oh, yeah, blink, blink, sir. Yeah. Art appraisal, tennis. Um, those are the only two that are coming to my mind. And they, he brought in this, you know, acclaimed tennis coach that had decades of people just saying he's the best. Trained all kinds of champions. Had the, like the perfect European name to be like a tennis coach. 
Yeah. And they uh they bring in uh like a VHS of of people um playing and they they play, they let the match roll. They throw the ball up in the air to toss to serve and they pause right before the climax of the toss is fulfilled and they they have him predict what's about to happen and his accuracy was something oh, like 9 times out of 10. I love that because I, I the thing is I totally relate with that. Like well, I, you can tell by how somebody even stands on stage. You can tell by how somebody holds the neck and the guitar, and you can tell very, very fast. Yet it's that rap RCP. It's insane. It's wild. Yeah, I, I it really is kind of insane how um, <laughs> how that accuracy is. Like very, I'm trying to think of a single time, and I'm sure there is because you know. Everybody gets shit wrong sometimes. No, but I hope so. I I can't think of a single time where I was like, this guy has no idea what he's doing, and then was like, oh, I was completely <laughs> because it. You at least can ballpark it, right? It's just like the tennis coach. Like he's not going to get it right 100 percent of the time, but yeah. you can base it off of like stance. How far does he throw the ball in the air? Is like what is the like movement of his hips? Are his hips moving in the right direction? Yeah. He goes immediately, like, is he going to hit the ball completely? Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty wild how, yeah. And all of it, and all of that is happening subconsciously. None of that is happening consciously at all. What do you think about this question? So, how about when you're very aware of yourself when you're doing your thing and performing and when you're, or even uh, recording and anything that involves meeting? It's detrimental. Right, it's the less aware you are of yourself that the more of that of the uh, the payoff of the hours can uh, you can be a conduit for those. It's almost like the less aware of yourself you are, the better you are. Yep, and it's, well, like, it's it, that's like the flow state thing. I remember reading a lot about mm -hmm. that when I first. You know, this is like the most LA thing I'm gonna say. I think I've probably already said a few other things, but before I got LA into like things. meditation, <laughs> like I got into meditating through Sam Harris. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading in one of his books and simultaneously or not simultaneously, but um, also on his podcast, he had a guest on and they were talking about the sort of metacognition and uh, the neurophysiology of flow states. And they were talking about surfers and musicians and all like musicians was actually one of their primary examples because um, something like surfing, you're not constantly constantly in the flow state because you're not always surfing right you have to get out there and it's sort of a prep thing but once you're playing music on stage with other people yep. there is no break like when you're in the studio and you're playing there is no break where you're like just chilling there you, you have to be oh yeah absolutely present and not self-aware at the same time which yep. is a very weird balance yes um and look, anytime that I get in my own head about something, I always play worse. Oh, it's never like yep. you're thinking about a certain chord change coming up. And you're like, okay, I got this. You always, you always play less than your ability. Yeah. But getting to that flow state is sort of part of the process of getting, I feel like at a certain point, your improvement on your instrument becomes much smaller and incremental right? Of course. Yeah. Anything that you're good at, it always, it's like you get up to a certain point and then it's, but I feel like at a certain point, a lot of that stuff comes down to how can you reach the state of flow yep. 
quicker and more reliably. My man, the only one of the best mentors I ever have is when I first started um, singing, um, Priscilla Bagley. And I wasn't the kind of singer that she normally would train. She usually would train like bel canto, operatic, uh, theatrical singers. And I met her through my ex-girlfriend, Aubrey. And um, she said, a pro gets there faster and stays there longer. Yep. She goes, tell me one facet of your entire career where that won't matter. Yeah. And she she made one caveat, which is, you know, whatever you deem to be success, because you should never not deem yourself to be unsuccessful. You should always try to just recognize the success you have and then try to see other success that you can attain. But success is both attained presently and also to be attained presently. Um, which is great. And, but, you know, get, get there faster and stay there longer. And that was in particular reference to like breath control and vibrato, but it's the same thing with guitar. It's the same yeah. thing. Someone knows how to bend a string that makes them feel so much that everyone listening feels so much. It's like, you're getting there faster and you're staying there longer with that connection and that execution. Yeah. When, and it, there's something very crazy when you're watching somebody like Keith Jarrett, play piano where you're like right this guy there could literally be Mm. right like (laughs) like a (laughs) world ending earthquake around him and he would be completely unaware wow because he's so you have to be interested in what you're doing or you won't be interesting and it's like the people who almost let music be real yeah that's the thing I've been thinking a lot. It takes a level of, I don't know if the word delusion is right. But yeah, no, seriously. That's you know what I'm saying though. Like I feel it. I really do. I really do. It's a level yeah. of belief. And think about what music really is. So like, say time is relative to this reality that we exist on, on this planet. And it's like. Oh, we go on Elon Musk. Okay, let's do it. Oh. <laughs> let's do it. Well, hey, songs, a song's uh, two minutes and 37 seconds. It's uh-huh. like, what like you're just saying but what kind it could be a fast as fuck song could be 145 beats per minute it could be edm perfectly just zed diplo awesome hit yeah. could be two minutes 37 seconds of of um of you know bill evans yeah yeah it could be the same thing it could be bluegrass and it's like all these things that we that we say about songs and music like time is where it all where it all starts and where it all begins and it's crazy where you're literally just taking time and saying that we're going to do this with time for this period of whatever you call minutes and seconds but the amount of motions uh motions and emotions like chord, chordal and melodic motions and then you know emotions that you transcend through lyrics and and uh dynamic in your delivery of the song like gentle on my mind like you're that time when you're listening to that song however long it is in con- in contrast to listening to a Shania Twain song, you yeah. know, in contrast to listening to an old blue song, it's like, it's a different world for those two minutes and 37 seconds in your you mind. What's funny is exactly relating to that in, in those conversations and books I was reading about like flow state stuff. The, one of the primary examples of knowing that you were in that state after the fact is inability to decipher amounts of time because and so that's exactly like how long are your dreams you don't know well exactly well also like it, in a very specific way i remember this is the first time i really really remember being like i can't believe that that much time passed was practicing guitar in high school oh, I, I would get home from school yep do my homework 
in seriously big quotes, just like BS, like, oh yeah, whatever. How'd you and do the, that? Were you, you seem pretty like rather intelligent. So I'm sure you, you did just fine. I did. I did surprisingly well, given how little I put into it. Like I of course. Put almost zero effort in and, but I still stressed about it. Which well, is so that's because you're intelligent. The, the, the more intelligent people are oftentimes more sad. And more yeah, it's, exposed. It's of like, I, okay, if I found the same interest in high school yeah. that I did in guitar, I I have no doubt I would have had like a 4.9 or whatever. Well, yeah, you'd be working at Robin Hood. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like I, I can tell that like, because when I get obsessed with stuff, I get really obsessed with stuff. But I would get home from school and just literally play guitar until midnight, like every day. But yeah. I wouldn't realize I had been in my room for six hours without eating. My mom's like, you haven't had food since like 1 p.m. You don't need food. <laughs> Your body will go, you don't need, what are you talking about? You live in LA, dude. Everyone's on fucking ketosis over there. Well, I was in, I was in San Diego at the time where everybody's just eating like carne asada fries. <laughs> <laughs> like they're just eating like California burritos and shit. But like yeah like dude those freddie king solos that was my sustenance yeah yeah i'm going down you know so crazy and it's like the thing i feel like there's a real it's a really funny trick i think that like whatever it is that that spawns that like whatever it is like the muse wise that curates that relationship between you and the guitar i think they give you the gold uh, in the secrets of the relationship with music in those early stages. And like, it's very easy to lose sight and lose um, a grip of hand with that state of reading. Yeah. Like, and it's, I don't know if it's fully possible to ever live in that state for that long. I don't know, but it's like um, to be our age and still have a percentage of us in our psyche feel like that high schooler. I feel like it's a yeah. really, you know, in the, it's special, it's special, man. It's, it's, yeah. But it's not 100% of who we are anymore, at least for me, speaking for myself. You can't as an adult. I mean, that's why I think we were saying earlier with the pandemic that it was in it enabled. It enabled us to go back to that state of high school temporarily because right. when you're in high school, you have jack shit for responsibilities, right? Like you need to get enough done of your homework to not get grounded. And that's basically, and then you need to like, even Go deeper. to the bathroom and shower and eat a little bit, and that's your whole life. Even even deeper than that, which is, think about think about this. Yeah, you don't have responsibilities. Also, you don't even have the thought of what a real responsibility is. Yeah, like you think it's it's sort of an idea, right? Like yeah. you have an idea of what it's like to have real responsibility, but you don't actually know. And look. I don't have kids and you don't eat like we don't yeah. even understand the upper levels of responsibility. We're tourists in responsibility pretty much. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, ha like having uh, like owning a house and having a kid is like the final step of, of true responsibility on this life. And, um, <laughs> but yeah, like you, yeah, you're right. It's sort of everything is everything outside of your immediate surroundings is just a concept. And some people are better at, at, um, I, I feel now I I might be wrong, but I feel like I was decent at understanding things as a concept and trying to put myself in those shoes, even if I didn't have real responsibility. I always acknowledge that I didn't, because I think some people in high school 
I think they think they have more responsibility than they do. And I always knew where I was like, this is my time to do all this practicing and all this obsession. Because I knew some people, some older people that played music and they didn't have the time. And they would always say to me like, man, if I could just sit and play guitar as much as you. And I remember at first being like, well, why don't you? And I was like, they can't. They have a family and kids and a job. And yeah. And and then when you're done with all that, there's all the other life BS that you and I know now that you have to take care of constantly. Your health, the state of your living space, the the state of your network, because you want to start creating opportunities with the talent that you curated. Um, you know, so you're born with a talent, um, and somehow through some means of luck and nestered love around that you've had from your family, you have the bravery and inspiration to pursue an instrument. With that talent, you apply effort. And therefore, you create a skill, and then the the you know the society we live in says, "Why don't you go make a life with this skill, Josh? You know, let's try." And I then I don't it's, know if I don't know if society was telling me that I was just telling my like I don't know if well I, let's talk about that because yeah. maybe in near Nashville that's different, but at least where I was, everybody thought I was insane. But the market didn't is what I'm saying. Like the people who ultimately cared didn't. They thought you were right on money. Sure. But yeah. I, yes, but I wasn't around any of those people. Like I, so the first real professional thing that I did yeah. was when I went out to Alabama to record with Johnny Sandlin, who's the guy who produced like all the Almond Brothers stuff and like a lot of the Capricorn Records stuff. That was your own original project, right? No, no, no. So this is a wild story. So my dad worked at a company called Granger that just does like, you know, they sell like industrial supplies and AC units to buildings and stuff. My dad was a salesperson there. And just a lady at my dad's work ended up finding out that, Hey, his kid plays guitar. They started talking. She goes, you know, what's really funny is I used to date Greg Allman in the 60s. And my dad made some dumbass joke like, well, who didn't? <laughs> and then they, but then they kept talking and she was serious. And she was like, hey, uh, I don't have Greg's number anymore, but I have this producer that was around all the time. He was in uh, the Hourglass, which is sort of a pre Allman Brothers band with mm -hmm. those guys. And then also went on to produce Brothers and Sisters and worked on the Dickie Bet solo stuff and that whole sort of world. So I just sent him a blind email, mm -hmm. literally, hey, just want to reach out. And he's like, yeah. well, do you have any recordings of yourself? Yeah. No, I'd never yeah. been in a recording studio in my life. I'd only been playing guitar for like two and a half years. That's crazy. And so I literally went to, I didn't tell him I didn't. I went to a guitar center. I bought a backing track CD for like 12 bucks. What year was this? 2006. I think maybe seven right in there. Yeah. So I was, you, like a, I was a sophomore in high school. I started playing guitar right before eighth grade. Yep. And so I bought this back in track CD. I found a local boys and girls club that had a recording setup. They barely knew how to use it. The guy basically put on the backing track with, I had headphones on, was standing in the room with the amp and just like he played the whole CD front to back. I just looked at what key the song was in. Wow. And then played. And yep. I took this single CD and yep. shipped it to Alabama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, a, two weeks later, I got a call while I was in a Chili's with my mom. Yeah. I thought it was a prank call because they were doing this really crazy Southern accent. I wasn't putting anything together. I was like, who is this? Like, it was Johnny. And so he asked me to fly to Alabama that summer and record on a record with like Dwayne Trucks, um, Derek's younger brother, who's now the drummer in Widespread Panic. And Kevin Scott was the bass player who 
is now the music director for Jimmy Herring, plays in like John McLaughlin's band, plays in Wayne Krantz's band, like, and has become like, it's funny because a lot of the people he introduced me to musically, he's now playing with, but that's another story. So I went out to record on this album by Highly Kind, which was a band, and I recorded for the first time ever in the studio on like half this record. And uh, so that was my first, that was like the first time somebody that really, really, really had cl- like clout in the mu- music industry and the Almond Brothers are my favorite band of all time, especially at that moment, that I was like, I can do this for a job. But you're right, like until, until I got that validation from somebody at that level, I had no idea. No idea. Yeah, it's almost like, so there, I think there's two parts to, to, uh, to talent. And um, when you're in high school, you're only familiar with the first part or whenever, whatever first young age it is before you start having a career out of it, which is you have a talent and you apply effort to it and you create a skill. But then you have this tool, you have this skill, right? If you apply effort to that skill, you create opportunity. And I think that's where responsibilities to fulfill start coming into play when you have opportunity that, that needs fulfilling, which everyone has to face in their life. And it's good because that's how you grow your life. And that's how you grow as a, as a human and, and get better in, in all domains possible. But it's like, yeah, man, it didn't sound like to me though, which is great for you. Is you didn't, you didn't have to go try uh, to create too many opportunities before you started finding success. And it's because you really honed in on what you're just naturally talented at, but you know, vibrationally speaking, like you found what you were supposed to be good at. You did it well. Yeah. I feel really lucky because i you know i because lucky, i didn't really what do you think you seem you are a lucky guy sir we i was walking down the street in nashville the other day and i thought it was so funny so i, I you know those audio messages are fun like on on uh from they, they are. i'm getting more into them lately the way more direct it's way better it's way it's a better time saver and i'm walking down the street and there's all this construction happening and so i'm listening to this audio message that you're telling me of everything that you did during quarantine, you got like nominated for a Grammy, released projects, all kinds of placements, and we're practicing all the time. And then I'm walking, I'm listening to this on the street, and some guy's like, hey, dumbass, get on the fucking side. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to play downtown, which I feel very lucky to do, but we only played to maybe, you know, at most 50 people because- Dude, I'd play to a fucking blank wall at this point. Well, that's why I'm I'm back playing at Roberts, and it's it's so fun. It's in high school again. Like I'm literally simulating my high school life once more, just as a, someone who's had ten years of of life experience. So I I feel like I was I almost get to come back and and um have the same relationship with music I had when I was just learning to drive and do all these things that now I'm you know ten years of of understanding under my belt. And yeah, but going back and being, I think a lot of people actually have that sort of um. No, it's not a dream, but it's something that it's like that thing of like, dude, if I could go back to high school now, I'd ace every class. I'd be like magnum cum laude. Like I would. Uh, and I, I think you're almost doing that right now. Like you're going back and acing all the stuff that you were doing really well at as a teenager in high school, but now actually have like the wisdom to go along with the sort of like uh, brashness and and intellect and desire that you had back then. But with wisdom. Mm-hmm. And it's like, cool. that's got to be cool. Like, it's got to be rad. Because I think when I saw you play, were you a senior in high school? Because huh. I think I was like two years. 
Okay, I met you. I had gotten back from Japan. I think I had just gotten back from the Beth Hart tour oh, when I met you. You were in Japan, tour. I forgot you did that. Insane. Yeah, that was the first tour I was on. Career you've had so far. What's the deal with luck, man? What do you think about luck? What, like, I, honestly, I, do you ever think about luck? Do you ever think like, yeah. I think about it all the time. Like, all in, the time. when people hit me up that are really good players that don't have as many opportunities created. It's like that being aware of the fact that luck really applies in two ways. Like you're lucky to have a talent at an instrument, mm -hmm. but with a career, you have to have luck with opportunity, which is an entirely different side of the picture. And yeah. it's, You've had a lot of luck with both facets, man. I, man, I appreciate it. I, I feel super lucky. Like I, That's definitely something I acknowledge all the time. What do you, what do you think about luck in, a, in well, a, an abstract I way? Think, I, I think the classic thing of like luck is preparation meets opportunity. I think that's the, the, the reason that is such a common uh, phrase is because it's true. You feel like you could actually just say like, yeah, Ben Franklin said that to almost anything wise. And people would be like, oh, yeah, it's my favorite Ben Franklin quote. Probably. I feel Probably. like Ben Franklin said that, but then I had the thought I was just going to say Ben Franklin said that. I bet no one would know. Wait, who did actually say it? I, you know what? That's one of those phrases that's so common. I don't like, even know who said it. I think Ben said it. Let's see. Luck, is it a Ben Franklin quote? Luck is – what is it? Luck, luck is – Preparation meets opportunity. Thanks for listening, Google. Let's see, let's see who said it. Uh, Seneca. Now I fuck with oh, him. Oh, that goes way back. Life is <laughs> Seneca. Tim Ferriss, like Tim Ferriss is a big Seneca guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. As long if you know how to use it. That was Tim Ferriss turning me on to that 86 page book or whatever it is. It's absurd. I don't know if I've read any Seneca, but I've sort of heard him. But I, I've always thought that that quote, so in regards to luck, like mm -hmm. I was always actively pursuing preparation. Like, mm -hmm. Like, here's an example. Right. When Johnny Sandlin called me in that Chili's, I went outside and realized it was him because I'd never talked to him on the phone. Oh, wow. He wow. asked me, do you play slide guitar? <laughs> and you said, you know yes. what I said? Well, yeah. Yes. And you know what the truth was? No. No. You I didn't know the slide. I owned one and had just briefly messed around with it and been like, this is really hard. Well, think about it. You believed in yourself enough to know that really what you were saying was, no, but I'm good enough to where I can. Like I can, I know I can. I and I knew that I had two months to learn. That's a long time to learn a skill. That's a long, it's, I yeah. mean, with slide, it's not as much as you'd want, but it was one of those things where it was like, I was presented with the luck of getting to, to be in contact with Johnny through pretty much random circumstances. Right, right. But- I wasn't taking the preparation lightly at all. Maybe random like, is less random than you think, right? It's like, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say with a lot of that stuff because the world is truly so random. But and that's sort of an example of like the luck was almost like the luck happened, but the preparation was like almost post luck, where I was like, I got two months here. Now this is where I put in the time. And the slide guitar that I played made that made that record. It's on the album on like three or four songs. So I was like, that's sort of an example of like luck happening. And then me being like, I know that I'm lucky right now. So yeah. I'm not going to blow this. No. Yeah. Cause you found meaning in, in the, in the, in the amount of chaos that time usually presents to you. Like if you can perceive meaning, if you can conjure up a low resolution vision of meaning, you're like, yeah, I'll invest the time to make this thing a high resolution reality. 
you know, and yeah, it's like, yeah. Well, but, it was also like, what's yeah. the harm here? I get better at slide, even if it doesn't make the record. Like the worst, worst case scenario there. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. It's all compound interest on on when yeah. when you have yeah when you have meaning with your instrument, everything you do. You know, that's what I'm circling back to experience. It's like even the the experience of um, that we were talking about earlier, the experience of socialization, whether that's just through friends, whether that's through love with with uh, with with people, with family, but then also experience through trial by fire. Like that's the realist experience that curates an identity in a high resolution scale on it, on whatever it is you're trying to do, whether it's an instrument or whatever domain. Dude, it happened to me. I had moments just like that when I to play um what was it um the first time don kelly called me to play in his band to sub out for jd jd yeah. called and this this is one of my heroes like this was my 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 to see him play anytime you were legally allowed right before i was even legally allowed you know <laughs> I, I was in there all the time man and i my love uh for for the music transcended any you know legalities that Nashville might have had for us, and the, the staff at Roberts is always very accommodating. Uh, it's letting you know because I just love it. No one denies love because truth is found in love, and we want to serve those things if we're good people. You know, yeah, yeah. We always because we see it in ourselves, you want to see it in others. Um, yeah. And it was JD called me at two thirty. He goes, "I just cut my hand making a sandwich. Can you play with Don tonight at six? Oh, it's like Jesus Christ! What the fuck? Of course. Now, how long had JD been in the band at that point? Oh man, let's see. So he, I was sixteen, so he was twenty-six, and so I left the band four years after that. So that must have been two thousand twelve. So he must have been in the band for like five years. So he'd been doing it a long time. He'd been doing it, and that yeah, they're years. playing multiple times a week. They're playing four no. hours a night, four days a week, sometimes five days a week. Um, if it's Christmas and New Year's, you might play six. Great. Oh my God. Great There's a lot great. of guitar the whole night. It's all leans on guitar and it all leans on um, the guitar being on frequency wise. Like you have to hit all the major thirds. Like you have to hit all possible voicings to accommodate just the intention of the music. Because the intention of honky tonk music is very different than the intention of most forms of country music. Honky tonk music is to also conjure the classic feeling of movement. So it has to make you move. So it has to be very, very simple. And it has to be very persistent in its in its um in its beat and rhythm. You and guys man, aren't playing a lot of like Wichita linemen, which is a great song, but it's like not a honky tonk song. No, it's simple songs yeah. with a lot of emotion. And so you have to be focused. And man, it's like the amount of flow that I would have in that in that time of my life, I go back and I listen to those performances and it's like, I really miss that. Um, yeah. That forced flow that only a gig can offer. Like it's hard to get yeah. into that flow when you're just by yourself in your house, you know? So I really miss playing shows for that reason. Isn't and that funny? That, like Playing with um, Don, because I don't know if you, maybe you experienced this in Shania's band. Or is there any, like Don would force you to show up. It's like, you were there. Like you are there, you are sober, you are ready to go at 6.45, we are downbeating, right? So you're ready to go at 6.30, you're on stage, right? Yeah. You're sound checked, you have the same settings as the day before, earplugs in, shirt maybe one button, two buttons down, right? Red Bull sugar-free <laughs> with, uh, you know, like the three or four a night just playing like honky-tonk music for four hours. And it's yeah. like, let's go. And it's the same thing every night. And so he would force it out of you. He would like scream at me when I was playing. 
like, get it, motherfucker. Like I'm like 17 years old. No, I do too. And he's in part of what I do now whenever I'm on stage. Like people always say like, I, there's all this, um, someone called our last record invigorating, which was a word I never thought of uh, for me, for, for my music and the way I play. But I listen back, it's like, yeah. And it makes sense because I literally had a coach like on the sideline next to me every night forcing an invigorating drive out of what I do. And so it's kind of in just like my motor functionality of a musician now to just kind of be really on the side of invigorating as opposed to being in the Jay Dilla world of things, which is slouching, but you know. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, why that's... the Nias group are, is there anyone, I bet you're one of those players where you're forcing everyone to kind of vibrationally rise up to that level of just awareness and being there and knocking it out. I think, you know what I have to say? I definitely, I definitely feel that. Cause that's how I think that's how I am on stage too. The Shania show is different where I think everybody has to be on all the time because the reality is like I start the night out and within five minutes, I'm playing a Brent Mason solo note for note. Oh, that's awesome. Barely any like, you know what I mean? Like, hey, we're two songs in. Here you go. Yeah, Brent would probably have to go back and relearn. (laughs) I'm I'm sure. And the, the, the stuff that he played is is brilliant. We were talking about that on the podcast and he, when he was talking about saying, you know, that was something I would ask you about. He said when he was working with Mutt Lang, it was unreal how yeah. much um, vision and uh, persistence and vision that that man had for the music in every uh, facet of the instrumentation and production. And, and I, when I joined, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. So what what was the deal with learning all those tracks, learning all those parts? Or are those just extremely high detail, high resolution oriented? Dude, it's wild. Yeah. It's wild. Does that uh, guitar function in a way? Like, how would you describe the way that a guitar functions in a Mutt Lang song? Because these are songs in Nashville. I got to tell you something. You're the right. songs might as well be a literally have been made in a lab somewhere that affects humans on some subconscious level that they're not aware of. It must be a drug. It transcends people. Like it turns people into different humans. That's like these classic songs. Like, what do you think it is? Well, and I didn't come from that world because like we've talked about, like I came from the improv, like blues and almond brothers were like, yeah, I, I, I mean, I look, I loved a lot of people that were very like articulate and writ- wrote their solos. And I was a big Randy Rhodes fan and all that stuff. And he obviously like triple tracked his solos. Yeah. Triple tracked his stuff. Yeah. But, um, I, at my heart is I'm an improv guy. Right. Definitely. When I got that gig, yeah, I had just gotten off doing the Beth Hart gig where I was essentially like subbing for Bonamassa. Yeah. So you got to be Josh Gooch. Yeah. yeah, like, cause, and, and I, I'm very thankful for that opportunity because, like, Joe had done this record with Beth Hart, and Joe has his, Joe's always been very, very nice to me, and I'm always very thankful. He's, he's been very nice to me, and I've known Joe for a very long time, and he's been really cool. And, you know, he has his touring thing on such lockdown where he just, also, it's a finely tuned machine. It's a, the best machine I've ever seen made in, in the music for a guitar player. Incredible. And people could learn an enormous amount, an immense amount about touring and how to do it right. Through Joe. Yeah. And he ended up being like, I'm going to do, keep doing my own thing. So Beth, you, you know, you can tour this record, but it's going to be, it's going to be a, a different thing. Yep. Um, I don't know exactly how that conversation went, but cool. anyway, they needed a guitar player to come in and rip. <laughs> Joe had absolutely crushed it on that record and was playing just a ton. So, 
I had, I literally got the Shania gig during a break. Like I did multiple auditions. So I like, I was in Europe with Beth Hart doing that, the, the, the Beth Hart, Joe Bonamassa record came back, did two or three different auditions with Shania flew back to Europe and then got an email while I'm in the van in Europe. And I'm literally like, Oh, I got to start learning these songs because when I get back, I have to start auditions. And it was her first shows in like a decade. So I got emails that was like, look, learning these parts, it's not get the general idea. It is every single finite detail of the part you should know. You're talking about Shania now. You, yes. You've gone from Beth to Shania. Can I say one thing about Beth that was funny? I, yeah. I just remembered as you were telling me that. I got a call to audition for, for Beth. No, really? Yeah, I did. I didn't know that. And I tried. I learned, you know, it was beautiful. It was like this fear almost of like a real opportunity. Like, oh my God, I could tour. I go explore the world. Yeah. And then I saw you got the gig. And man, those videos of you guys playing in Europe and, and you, you know, you're playing on the Yamaha. You went from the Les Paul to the Yamaha and like that's the switch. And it was beautiful. The work. Oh, thanks, man. And it's like to, to have the ability to lean into your ego, to be able to find your own individuality, um, which is kind of a way of being an outlaw in the way of being a professional musician. Astounding. But then you had an opportunity come your way that is to literally take your ego and flip it on its axis, which is use the ego to serve a lack of identity in some sense, yeah. fulfill the parts that the machine requires. And it's like, that, that is was really enlightening. Yeah. How'd you, so I, by the way, I didn't know that about, about the Beth Hart thing. Well, and let me say this, when you mentioned it earlier, Beth is kind of like Dawn. She brings it out of you. Beth, yeah. Beth while I'm sewing, be like, come on, motherfucker. Like, like yeah. she would be like, scream, like she would get, Beth is awesome. And an absolute sweetheart. Is that Shania, is that, does Shania ever like, get it, let's go. Does she say, let's go, Josh, before she says, let's go? Yeah, she'll do stuff like that. But I think the show is so hectic and there's so much happening. Dude, it's absurd. It's like Cirque du Soleil meets country music. It's like, uh, it's amazing. It's wild. It's wild. But yeah, so like it. To, the, to the machine thing. So yeah, yeah. I remember getting the stems and getting emails that was like, learn this. So I went and found every video I could of, of them playing in the nineties. And I was watching, are they playing this hybrid picking? Are they playing this finger picking? Are they arpeggiating, are they arpeggiating this all with the pick? I would listen to all the recordings. I got the stems and some of it was unaffected stems where like I got to hear what Brent and Dan Huff and Michael Thompson and a little bit of Bukovac did in the studio before Mutt reamped it and completely, because everything you hear on that record or th those records None of that is as it was played in the studio as far as tone. Sure. Yeah, of course, though. Of course, you're going to track it clean because you, yeah, you got to have Even it. more than most records where some records, it might be like, oh, they did it. Like, Mutt would be like, I'm going to completely yeah. turn this. Like, I'm going to take your deluxe reverb and like feed it through like a pod and then reamp it through this weird thing and then EQ out all the bottom end. And like, he's, he's everything that everybody says he is as far as his obsession with the music. The great thing about that gig is that my partner in crime and actually the guy that I got the Grammy nomination for Bill and Ted with is the other guitar player in Shania's band, Corey Churko. He's the band leader. Mm -hmm. and he was there from 97. 
So he got to work with Mutt for many years. And actually him and his brother, his brother's a really successful producer now. He produced like the last like couple Aussie records and Five Finger Death Punch and all these like rock and metal bands. And you want. And oh, I didn't know that he did his stuff too. Yeah, Ke- Kevin Kevin Churko is is oh Kevin Churko. Oh, Corey's so Corey and Kevin were hired by Mutt to be their Pro Tools studio guys. So not only did Corey, what do you mean by that? Were they engineers? Engineering, doing yeah. editing, doing yeah. all sorts of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, all the dirty work where it's just so sitting at the computer. There working on the patch bay, he's not working on. Applying all the compression, he's not he's not doing all the uh he's dictating all of it. He's just mm-hmm. not always running it. He truly is in the in in that sense the producer role. Right. Dude, he let me tell you this. He has co-writing credit on all those songs. Some of it he's he's inco- he's incorporating melodies in, but some of it is just really brilliant arrangement stuff. But also he's Reason literally involved weird. in so is what the arrangements are so weird. And it's all Mutt's ear. Like you hear it. If you go listen to Def Leppard or even the, here's the, here is, I think, the true genius of Mutt and his, uh, in in terms of arrangement outside of the production element. When you listen to ACDC on Highway to Hell, they're coming out of all these records where the arrangements are a little loose, but awesome and rock as hell on, you know, you know, Powerage and Dirty Deeds Under Cheap and all that amazing early Bon Scott stuff. When Mutt gets involved, he knows exactly what to do. Where with ACDC, he didn't change their sound at all. Mm. He didn't change, like, he wasn't trying to make them a band they weren't. But what he did was he went through all the little things and was like, we can keep that same Angus Young energy, but make the solos all singable. And when you listen to any Angus Young solo pre-Mutt, they're rip-ass blues rock to the tilt, right? But you can't sing any of them. Mm. As soon as Mutt gets there, right, he retains all that, but all of a sudden, you think of like the solo to Back in Black, the solo to Highway to Hell. You can hum all of it. Down, 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 down. All of that is, is like Mutt and him just like, just littlest bit. And then with a band like Def Leppard, he rebuilt them from the ground up. Oh, and with oh, Shania, wow. it was, he was there from, from, they sort of built it together. There wasn't a, a teardown process like there was with Def Leppard where they took a, an existing sound and eliminated it and then built it up with Shania. They, him and Shania built it from, from nothing, right? Like, cause she had done a record before and they didn't let her write any of the songs, the label sort of like. They, they didn't allow her personality out because nobody knew who she was. When they had the clout of Mutt, they were like, do your thing. You're Mutt Lang. You sold 100-odd million records. Do your thing. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, they had that big budget and that first record sold, I don't even know how many millions of copies, but a lot. But it's very cool to be a part of that machine and it took me a while to appreciate it because when you come from an improv world, at first you're like, I want to do all this other stuff and I want to, but then the magic when you, the first time everybody is nailing collectively all these parts, it's magical. It's really magical. And, and I know a lot of like improv guys are kind of, or, or, you know, guys in that world, they kind of turn their nose up to it 
like, oh man, you're not doing your own thing. And I've sort of, the, the thing is she does give me plenty of moments in the show to improvise. Yeah. But there are a lot of those songs that the reason it works was because right. here's a guitar fill, then here's a fiddle fill. And the, the front of house guy is riding the fills the whole time because they all coincide. It's like this giant puzzle and they fit together, you know? Well, it's not like it's not automated on the record. So it's like, why would it not be? Why would you not live it? Why would you not ride it live? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're serving the record. You're serving the experience. The yeah. power of conformity, man. That's a, you know, the opportunity to have learned the power of conformity at, at the stage and scale that you did. It's really powerful. Because a lack of conformity to the listener is like very detrimental, even if you're improvising or not, which, you know, ultimately the depths of improv are just, it's like that scene from The Office where Angela's like, why can't they just play the right notes? <laughs> it's like, well, it's like, well, they're improv. It's like, so the power of conformity, right? And, and that music is the ultimate. I mean, you're talking about like, if you were to show an alien popular country music, you would show them Shania Twain, especially from yeah. the spectrum. Like that's without question. It's, it's, like, it's so well made. It's, it's some bullet points. Like, what do you think it is? Like, what is the guitar doing? Is it, is it, is it in its simplicity that it's genius or is it, is it also in its advanced, maybe odd orna ornamentations that it's also genius? Like how would, what's the style of a Mutt Lang guitar approach? Meticulousness. That oh, would be, wow. and, it, and it's, and it's building, it's building blocks. Cause when you talk, when you listen to any of those interviews, you know, it's funny. It's like every guitar player that worked with Mutt yep. has a great story about something he said to them that has affected them for years. <laughs> fact, the yeah. most recent one yeah. was on one of those Bukovac homeschooling episodes. Um, somebody sent this episode to me because he was talking about, I think I'd already seen it because they're all great and, and it's awesome. And I, I really love that Bukovac's finally getting the love outside of Nashville because I remember everybody from the Nashville world through the Shania gig. That's where I learned about the great Nashville session players and Bukovac was one of them. Oh, but people in LA didn't really know Tom, except if you're, you've been around a really long time or you're Tim Pierce, it's somebody that knows those, but the average LA guy didn't really know much about Tom. And I'm, I'm glad that he's finally getting the praise outside of Nashville because he's just fantastic. But in one of the episodes, he talks about, he was playing these chords and Mutt, I'm not even going to do the accent because South African accent's really tough, but, tough. and he's got a bit of British in there because that's where he lived and he hey, lived Matthew, in for a while. Mutt Lange, Elon Musk, and what's in the water down there? There you go. So you can maybe translate and you could, you could do the accent for me. But he, he said to Tom, he's like, mate, why are you playing so hard? Pretty much like. Oh, an awareness. Yeah. It's his job play, to be. Play lighter. Right. Play lighter. You're feeling the strings. Right. Right. Remind yourself. Well, Tom, the way he sets his action on his guitar is really silly, low, really low, silly. Like yeah. only that's what I'm saying. Check this out. What do you think about this? Not to cut you off. Yeah, yeah. Who you are and how you're dynamically feeling as a human is directly translated when playing an instrument. And yeah, like Tom yeah. is that low action, loose, quiet guy. Like, you can see it in homeschool and just his approach, his philosophy, even the way he speaks, the tempo that he speaks at. It's no yeah. action. Yeah, it's yeah, he he gets a lot out of a little. And he said, I mean, he must have it must have been on the up record that he was working with Mutt, because I don't think he was involved before that. So that would have been like 
2001. So we're talking 20 years ago. And he still he was like, yeah. he was like the idea of turning your shit way up and playing lighter and letting the notes bloom. I'm sure, I'm sure he had heard that before. It's not like, no, yeah, but, whatever, but hearing it from somebody like Mutt in the moment, yep. that's just a perfect example of like, anytime somebody works with him, they have stories. And I, I feel lucky as hell because I have people like when I first joined her band, half the band mm -hmm. was there with Mutt. And let me tell you this, when they were rehearsing for those old Shania tours, Mutt wasn't off producing some record. He was producing the show. Or she was. He was there 14 hours a day, every day of the week, yeah. rehearsing the band. So fun. So he could have been, I mean, realistically, he could have been out there producing well, yeah. any number of the biggest artists in the world at that time. Yeah, 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 totally. And he was like, no, I want to make sure this live show is amazing. Yeah, yeah that is, a, that is a, a man who understands his purpose, you know, and is just aware. That is really cool. That's yeah, it's, it's cool. Man, to be aware of of that level of detail is someone who's really in control of their own. Yeah. It's like that is a powerful person. That's really it's like the stories of the Def Leppard records where they recorded every power chord a single note at a time. Holy shit. They recorded all the power chords one note at a time, and that's how Mutt did it. You know what's funny? It's like he was kind of ahead on the curve of the in the ways in even in modern music production, how you go about curating a sound which is as many tracks as possible and just the least amount of uh information per track as you need and just stack it accordingly with proper gain staging and a lot of compression as things are getting louder and that's and when everybody else screws up because they put too much shit in there and well, it sounds like a for. giant wall of sound and nothing yeah. And yeah. that's one of the things i absolutely hate about modern mixing and production is when you look at somebody like mutt there's a there's an insane amount of stuff there, but you know what? It's all playing a very specific purpose and it's all audible when you listen on headphones. I feel like now I listen to modern tracks and I'm like, okay, I can tell there's like five guitars in here. I don't know what any of them are doing. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so you're talking about that, right? Yeah. That's a different thing. Now there's a lot going on. Yeah. And not in the right way. In, so, my, in my opinion, you listen to those new Luke Combs tracks. Um, those are some beautifully tracked simple guitars that are just stacked very well. Who played and, on that? Was that Robin Nelly? Is who? Saul Phil Cox. Okay. Oh. He played on he played on all of it. Pretty certain. I, I also I am also not certain, but I, I I think he uh pretty certain that he played on all of it. And I haven't it, heard I haven't heard that stuff. I should go listen to it. Oh, just big clean telecasters that are all just hook based. And very, yeah. very well stacked, you know, the major thirds are placed in the right places, yep. right, that kind of thing, just the perfect attention to detail. And it's, it's cool, man. So yeah, so the Mutt Lang thing is, is, um, wow, just attention to detail. Yeah, and not cutting any corners. That's yeah, and it, it helped me a lot because I came from the improv world where it was kind of like, oh, I put in my time, I can like get through whatever I need to, which I think in, to a certain extent was true, but having that meticulousness that I've learned because now I work with Corey so much and Corey worked with Mutt for so long. He really has Mutt's philosophy in his bones. And I work with Corey all the time. I mean, what? we spent like 10 months working on the Bill and Ted stuff together. 10 it, months, sir. It was an enormous amount of work that, that we did. Cause it, you know, that song's like 
fuck, I don't even remember now. I think it's like nine minutes or something. And it's like five different tempos. We originally got three different tracks that were semi-produced and we had to basically consolidate and all this. And we got to mutlangify the track and go through meticulously and like take this thing that was this giant, like just like, it was almost like a giant box of things that somebody just threw in our lap and was like, fix this. Wow, yeah, right, right. And, yeah. And I got to go through it with Corey and um, I just, I, I, Corey's such a great mentor to have. And uh, so, yeah, we got to do, we got to go through and do that. And it was really fun, but it was an enormous amount of work. Yeah, it's be though. It's like the best opportunities always require the most amount of, um, of uh, negotiation with reality where you got to put in the work. Right. But that's a real opportunity that you applied your talent to and created greatness from. And it's like well, the, the film industry is a whole different thing where I, I mean, I, I've done sessions for TV and film, but producing for TV and film is a whole different ballgame as far as notes process. And like, there's a lot of, there's a lot happening because there's a lot of money in the line, a lot more than an album for a movie that with like Keanu Reeves in it. There's a lot of money at stake. Wow. Wow. Right. Totally. Totally. So what did you learn from that process, would you say, in, in perhaps a capsule form? Um, Again, what a fantastic yeah. opportunity to, to take your ego. It's almost like that's a huge part of the story with you, with your career, It's which is really beautiful, which more so than I've seen, you know, with people within our age range, um, more so than anyone, which is you have been tasked with having to kind of learn the Rubik's Cube of ego, as <laughs> get the one that's side down. You know, that's a great way of putting it. I, I there's think a great, there's a great thing to, you know, being the solo artist and, and that being your thing in like uh -huh. Masa. No one's asking Joe to, to play Shania Twain parts because that's not what he does. Like he's great being him. But with you, it's like your greatness is to be found in having to constantly go to the next chapter and see, and see what story is to be had there. Man, I appreciate that. I think, I think that's a good, I think it's a good summation because really like it's <laughs> the hard thing to do. And this is something I think everybody's always working on is like, especially when you're pivoting from like, Hey, I'm playing right. you know, slide on this record when I'm just learning slide or going to Japan and doing all that, which is a whole other wild, like learn on the fly type thing. So huge audiences. Like what? The biggest audience I'd played for was my high school eighth grade talent show. Here's the thing. <laughs> Guitar for you was an invitation to step to another plane of reality. That's a, and you took it with bravery and, uh, and love. And I, I, I love it, but it definitely was, I had never traveled. Like I'd never been out of the United States. Japan. How many people, you're a fucking young child. How many people are you playing for in Japan when you're literally a young child that doesn't know anything? I think I got the gig when I was 18 and I went there when I was 19. And this is actually, this is actually a funny story. Check this out. You know, like this. So just so just to give other people a, a re reference here so um uh, my, my former manager robert knight who i met you through mm -hmm. um robert had robert's a very famous rock photographer and mm -hmm. has taken a lot of the most famous photos of like led zeppelin and and van halen and eric clapton and carlos santana and stevie ray vaughn and no, all I'm the people in stevie ray vaughn yeah in alpine valley yeah all the people that you and i love like all the people that mm -hmm. mean so much to us. So Robert had taken some photos for the rock walk induction mm -hmm. on, at guitar center in Hollywood for this band bees, B apostrophe Z. Mm -hmm. Now people in the States might not know who bees are, mm -hmm. but in Japan, the bees have sold 
over a hundred million records in just Japan because the music's in Japanese. Right, of course. So they're like the biggest rock band of all time in Japan. <laughs> so and the singer of that band was going on a solo tour. So instead of playing stadiums, they were playing arenas, which was like a like <laughs> them going on a small tour. And so he emailed Robert and asked him for some guitar player recommendations. He sent him like, I don't know, three or four guys. And they ended up saying, well, who's this, who's this Joshua kid? Huh. And, you know, they asked about him. And then they said, well, how old is he? And he's like, he's 18. And they're like, no, nah, we're good. Yeah. And Robert convinced them. Yeah. Let right. him audition. Let him audition. If he's too young, immature, you know, don't take him. Sure. But at least give him a chance. So sure. once again, they send me all this music in Japanese and they, I think they did this on purpose. They sent me a lot of music to learn in like a day and a half or two days. Sure. Flew up to LA, film it. They sent it to Japan. And, and then two weeks later, I got the call to do this tour. I'd yeah. never been out of the United States. The biggest shows I'd ever played were my eighth grade talent show and that King of the Blues competition where I met Robert. Sure. The national final <laughs> of that. You fucked that up too. Like that video is great. It's a fun video. I can't watch it just because it's one of those. Because you own it. It's you. You own yeah. who you were at that time. It makes sense you can't. But people who aren't you, it's a good video to, to hear about what good blue sounds like. Peter Green, Les Paul. Yeah, Scott, it was. Clapton Blues. Like it's that. You nailed that. Yeah. Man, I, I appreciate yeah. that. That was a f f really fun night. That was the most intense big audience thing I've ever done. But you that was still 1,500 yeah. people. Yeah. Like what's the deal? You fly over there. What starts happening? So... <laughs> We get into rehearsals and we're, you know, rehearsing very, very long hours. But you know what? It's like part of the thing. Yeah. The first show comes along. This is the wildest shit ever. So the front of the stage is like a, a like a quarter eggshell in front of us. And you can't see through it. Right? So it's basically like you're standing on stage and in front of you is like this giant wall that goes up, you know. So the audience can't see you and you can't see them. This, this is for set. This is for production. Ultimately, yeah. Yeah. right. So the first show is in, I think, Shizuoka, which is like the green tea capital of Japan. And so it's like a, a slightly smaller market, but it's still like thirteen or 15,000 people. So I go out on stage and I'm standing there and it is silent. Yeah. Um, culture. And I literally, well, at this time, especially that big of a room, like if we were in a little blues club, I'd be like, okay, they're just waiting. I couldn't see them. And I, I started, I literally had this thought of this is the most epic punked episode of all time. They're going to open because what happens is the first big hit happens and it goes translucent and you can see everybody. That's insane. And I was like, I'm going to, they're going to hit this first note and Ashton Kutcher is going to be in the first row and he's going to be like, we punked your ass. You didn't get this gig. This is all made up. And like, I had that thought of like, because I couldn't hear anybody. And then the first thing hits goes translucent and all of a sudden there's 14,000 people in the audience and they go insane. And I was like, that moment was like the light going on. For what, what was it like? The light was, this is real. Oh, actual career now because Oh my God. Yep. I hadn't been really paid in any substantial way. And, you know, like I didn't go to college and all this stuff that like, you know, my parents were super supportive, but I mean, you probably, we, I mean, I don't know how it was, how was it for you? Because I, I basically like my parents were unbelievably supportive, but before the King of the Blues and all this Japan stuff, they were kind of like, go do you, 
and it seems like you're doing really well and we think you have a real special talent. But if you've yeah. been doing this and you're 23, 24 and you're not making a living, like you're going to have to go to school and figure this out. Yeah. But the Japan thing was sort of like, it was like, here's the candle we're putting that light out of. This might not, this might not be a career because at that moment it was like, yeah, I'm now getting paid adult money to play in front of an arena. Do adult jobs. Yeah. And this is a job now. Oh yeah. This is awesome. a real career job. So that was the moment. I still think of that as the moment where like my career light turned on was that translucence of like, Oh, this is real. And I, I'm now going to perform it because I'd never played on a stage that's 50 yards long in front of that. I had oh, no experience. That's insane. You, it's truly, you yeah. learn on the job, like fake it till yeah. you make it. Of course you do. Just pretend that you're used to being there. You have to believe it until you start. You have no option to, right? Until until yeah. it's until it's the high resolution reality you participate in. You have to believe it's possible. Yeah, it's, and that's wild. Sir. That was the moment. That was like the and I I just remember being like, I can't believe how quiet they were because I took my in ears out to be like, are they here? <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, it was wild. So that was that was the that was the big moment of like. I I'd had some of those moments of validation through the Alabama stuff and then the King of the Blues where it was like, hey, I think I can do this. But then that was the moment where it was like, I'm doing this now. I'm doing this, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Good yeah. job, dude. Yeah, yeah man. Man, you just keep killing it. It's great. It's great. I think it's it's really, you're just always trying to learn. You're always trying to, because you turned me on to Sam Harris. You turned me on to podcasts years ago when we were high as fuck after getting Thai food <laughs> in uh, Silver Lake and we were sitting in, we were sitting in your car. You're like, do you know about Jay Dilla and neuropsychology? And I was like, <laughs> what? This guy's crazy, man. Yeah, I would do Finally, like finally someone who finds the same passion for life and expansion of, of their thought process as they do with music, because you realize that those two energies are boundaryless. And the more that yeah. you learn about life, the more you learn about music and, and the other way around, the more you learn about music, the more you can learn about life, which is what all these career opportunities are showing you, man, which is, it's cool just to touch back on and, and see that you're still like the Josh Gute show is going well. Like, man, really I, I appreciate that. Well, let, let yeah. me tell you this. Cause I, mm. I, I think, and, and maybe you feel the same way. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely got into a bunch of country guitar through you. Oh Yeah. Yeah, man. Thanks. I I think that showing somebody something that you really care about and them actually really becoming interested in it in like a long term way, like like you said with like Sam Harris and the neuropsychology stuff, and then also Jay Dilla and that hip hop world that I really love. The fact that that's like stuck with you for this long, that is honestly the coolest shit for me. Like I as far as like like hearing that is. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to be happy the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah. man. That yeah. rules because I, you know, when you show somebody something cool and you see their, their eyes light up and you're like, oh, they're, they're not only going to listen to this now, they're going to go home and listen to this. Mm -hmm. That's the best, the I know. absolute best thing. And I, I, I really appreciate you telling me that because that's awesome. Yeah, man. That's, it's real. I think, you know, it's about following that voice that, or whatever it is, I don't know that that like you know, you find in things that you love, and then sh and having the you know the the camaraderie to share that with others, um, it's beautiful, man. That's you know I I could tell that we love guitar for the same reasons when I first heard you play, because the only way to achieve that relationship with the instrument is to love it in that way. You know what yeah. I mean? 
just, you know, kind of like circling back to what I was saying earlier, it's like, we could have been talking this whole time and no one would have known. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Four years we could have been talking every week and people, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's just cool to, to touch base with you, man. And, and, um, you know, cause we're on that same journey with that same, same love for the instrument and same love for music. It's cool to see that's going that well for you. Um, you got a lot of shit going on, dude. This was fun. It was a good talk. Man, this was, this was a blast. I, 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 I really appreciate you having me on. And also it's been really rad seeing you do your thing. Cause it's like, there is, there's not that many people out there that have a love for specific, like, I know you have a lot of love for a lot of other genres, but to take the country medium of guitar and really start to expand upon it by bringing in other, other genres and other influences, because I think that in the past, I love country music, but there's definitely been a lot of like, it's got to remain country country, mm-hmm. which is fine. And I love that. But I, I think it's really cool that, that you've incorporated in some of the psychedelic elements and the jam band elements and stuff. And I, I, I just, it's really just rad seeing that. I mean, cause there's just basically nobody else doing it at the level that you are. And uh, yeah, I just, yeah, it's been really cool to see that, you know, cause I, I, you know, I appreciate all the compliments you've been throwing my way and, I just want you to know that, like, I feel the same way, man. It's really cool to watch you. Like I said, I saw you playing at Roberts at, when you were 16. So, like, to see Crazy. all this other stuff around you is just rad. It's just really cool to see. That's awesome. Yeah, man. It's That's crazy that you saw me that long ago. That's wild. Dude, that's it's, wild. it is truly wild. Yeah. I'm looking now, but really at 16, I was really dumb. I didn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's no way, there's no other way to be. Yeah, and it, you know you don't know better, but to pur- just pursue the love of the instrument twelve hours a day, you don't think any differently, you know. So, yeah, man, it's wild. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, man. If we could just keep on touring, I really want to get back on the road and do that. We were supposed to come all the way out to to LA last year and do oh, a yeah. at the Troubadour, but it just it, it, you know everything stopped. But man, I would love to do that. And when we do, you got to come sit in with us. Oh, dude! And, that would just be. I would uh, love that. And also, the Troubadour. Have you played the Troubadour before? On my twenty-first birthday, yeah. You did, dude? How fun is that venue? It's fun. It's I fun. so check this out. I got to play the last live show with John Prine that he ever played. What, sir? I was I was in the house band for the Willie Nelson tribute. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. And John dude. came out, and I I really didn't get a chance to talk to him. He he was in rough health, but. That was a really special night, and that was the first time I had played the Troubadour. I'd been there to a show, but I'd never played it, and uh, that was a wild experience. And we got to play, I think, three or four songs with John Prine, literally like two months before he passed. It was it was wild, but that venue is a special venue, man. I'm glad I'm glad that that's going to be where you're playing when you come out here, because there's there's no there's no more L.A. venue than the Troubadour. The history mm-hmm. there. Is amazing yeah it is the la venue it really is yeah like it i mean you and i love all the like linda ronstadt's and james taylor and joni mitchell and you know like crosby stills and nash like all the pete the laurel canyon folks that was their like second home so yeah dude if you come out i would love to sit in that would be fun as hell we'd have a good time the last time we actually got to play together on stage was like seven years ago when and- was that clothing store place that was also a guitar store. Was that seven years ago? 
Was that well, I, I was relatively new to the Shania gig. So it was like 2013 or 14, maybe. It might have been 13. Yeah, it might have been thir- 2013. Yeah, you're doing that. Yeah, you're doing those cool hangs at like those salvage denim stores, which was which is, which is fun. Those are really fun. I've been missing those too because I do those with my brother. He lives yeah. like a mile from me because my parents don't live in LA, but my brother lives. Uh, I'm going to go meet up with him after this. Like we see each other all the time, especially during the pandemic. But yeah, dude. Fuck yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Keep on doing you, man. It was cool catching up. And uh, yeah, we'll hang when I'm in LA. Or if you ever come to Nashville, do you guys ever come here? I would. I definitely want to get out there because I have a lot of buddies out there that I just haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. You know? and, and a lot of the guys who were in Nashville, guys that were in Shania's band, aren't in the band anymore. Because mm-hmm. um, those utility guys, get they get picked up quick because there's not a lot of... It's hard to find a guy who can play eight instruments at that level. So we, a couple of those guys that were really some of my best buddies, I haven't seen them in way too long. So I, I got to make it out to Nashville. Yeah, man. Come hang. Yeah, yeah. Come hang in the summer or something. If y'all aren't doing anything, it's been a yeah. couple of days. We can get some, we can get some time in the studio. We can just cut some tracks too, which would be fun. Dude. Awesome. I would All love right. that. I'll talk to you later, my friend. Stay good. Daniel Donato. Thank you very much for having me, man. We'll talk soon and congrats on everything. Thank you, Josh. I'll talk to you later, my friend. All right. Peace, buddy. Mr. Joshua, Joshua Ray Gooch, y'all. Uh, one of my dearest friends. Uh, what a brilliant mind and what a brilliant musician. If you're in the Los Angeles area and he's doing one of his uh, vintage pop-ups, um, live shows, please go and see that. But otherwise, go check him out on Instagram. He's always posting on there and his content is very engaging and truthful. Um, thank you, the listener. For, for staying tuned and keeping it cosmic as we travel down the Lost Highway to points of space and time not yet known, but un- uncovering the truth along the way. Uh, thank you to my friends and family over at Osiris Media for hosting the Lost Highway, because uh, this road needs a place to go. And then also thank you to our friends over at Topo Chico for keeping us high, geraded as we travel down the Lost Highway podcast. Now remember everyone, when somebody comes to you in one of your many conscious daydreams that you're having and they, they tell to you that they have a feeling that you're going to achieve one of the biggest dreams that you could ever ask of this universe and there is a voice inside your head that tells you that you're not going to, please let that voice know that I personally said that voice can go and fuck itself. Um, and say it in a responsible way. Don't do it all the time, but do it when it is necessary. Uh, getting back to Ned Lodgen's... Uh, Uh, Sorry if I'm pronouncing the last name wrong or incorrectly. Um, Mouth sounds. The philosophy of the Grateful Dead. To understand and appreciate and celebrate the mythological possibilities in everyday life and therein the responsibility to life and to the universe. You have a responsibility to be you and you have a responsibility to be as great as you can be. So fuck the voice in your head that says that you're going to do otherwise. Get it done. Because it's already getting done with you and that's what nature wants. Stay patient, stay persistent, stay positive, keep it cosmic, and I'll see y'all down the road. Osiris.